uh, I got a small part in a play in a uh, movie with Janet Lee and Robert Mitchum. And there was another boy who had been cast to play Janet Lee's son. It was basically a co-starring role, a very big role. And I had this little bit, actually, deliberately non-speaking part. I was his silent friend from downstairs. And there were a couple jokes about Joey and silent Joey and Joey who never says anything. And uh, so I was, I was cast into that part. And apparently this, this young fellow... Uh, who had the lead role, wasn't doing well. And um, after 10 days, they stopped filming and restarted with me in the lead role. And it's interesting because often I think back, I wonder what ever became of him, what what he went on to do, and whether that any, had any effect on his life at all. Friends, welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 22. I'm Jamie Berger. A few months ago, my friend Darcy came up to me very excited, telling me that her father had to be on my show. And that excited me because I want anyone who wants to be on the show to be on the show. But all I could tell at that moment is that Darcy wanted her father to be on the show and I didn't know whether or why he would want to. Darcy's last name is Giebert. Her father is Gordon Giebert. He is the dean of the Spitzer School of Architecture at City College of New York. But that's not why Darcy thought he should be on the show. From the late 40s through the early 60s, Gordon Giebert was a child actor. Among his credits are roles in The Flame and the Arrow, Narrow Margin, Chicago Calling, and perhaps his biggest role, and one that's appropriate for this time of year, Holiday Affair. He played alongside Janet Leigh, Robert Mitchum, Burt Lancaster, Donna Reed, Virginia Mayo, to name but a few. We met on Thanksgiving weekend and had a lovely conversation in one of the conference rooms of the Hampton Inn in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Quick note for you audiophiles out there. The first five minutes or so of the conversation have a little hiss to them that we couldn't seem to get rid of. Um, Sorry about that. But for those of you who like it, it's a bonus. Well, 
First, let me say hello, Gordon Geber. Hello. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you. What we're up to here is we just finished our 20th episode. It's called 15 Minutes, and it's just people talking about fame. It's been everything from some people of some relative renown, like John Hodgman from The Daily Show, to my friend Tim from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, uh, it's more an exploration of this phenomenon, which certainly seems to have reached a very bizarre and troubling apex this past couple weeks. Very recently. You know, because uh, <laughs> without fame, Donald Trump never would have been running if he had just been a happy billionaire child doing real estate, but he seemed to have to have it too. And so, uh, yeah, it's just kind of looking into it from all different perspectives. And when I told Darcy about it, uh, she said, well, my dad was a child star. Very star, excitedly. Star is, star is a bit um, of an exaggeration. She might have said child actor. That's that's accurate. Yes. That's quite accurate. Star yes. is... Uh, well, maybe that's yes. what the discussion's about. Yeah, sure, exactly. Well, the, the Des Moines Register article I read... Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, said you stole the show. <laughs> but why not start chronologically? How did you end up acting in movies as a kid? Oh, my father uh, was... a. Sought after fame, aha, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but but led a pretty anonymous or average kind of life. Uh-huh. Um, he was in the trucking business and but in sales, so you know sales has an aspect of um, profile to high profile to it. One yeah. wants to be high profile if you you know that's just part of, I think being a salesperson. And he was very much a salesperson, a really good salesperson, in the best sense of the word. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he sought to educate customers. Of course, there was always a little bias in that education mm-hmm. towards his product. Yes, well. But he was always eager to, that they know a lot about the product, and he felt then the product would sell itself. Uh-huh. But at home, he always made it really clear, a salesman is always selling himself or herself. Right. That first you have to gain yeah. uh, some sort of connection Hopefully, trustful yeah. connection with the with the customer. So anyway, that was the beginning of. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I grew up with that. I mean, I was born with that. I'm sure he was talking about it at the dinner table with my mom when I was probably a month old. Um, he was very gregarious, um, and um, uh, but he was also a kind of a frustrated actor. Again, I think that was part of seeking fame and connection with people. And, uh, but he was also uh, a child of the, of the uh, Depression. Mm-hmm. And so having a secure uh, living, having a, you know, a good solid income and assurances of that sort were import- really mm-hmm. important to them. Security was very important. So, of course, he didn't go off into an acting career, which about is, is about as insecure as you can get. Yeah. But he did do amateur theater. Uh-huh. And there was a very good amateur theater uh, organization in the town I was born in, which was Des Moines, Iowa. And he did a couple of plays. And um, there was a play that where they needed a boy. It, it was a play he had been cast in that they needed a boy cast also. So uh, I was cast thinking it would be good. My father would be on stage. Uh-huh. It just was an overall connection. Of course, I think he probably sold me as a tremendously talented little actor at the age of 
probably five or six, whatever it was. So anyway, I did the acting and did well. And apparently I must have enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, I did a couple of other plays there mm -hmm. at that playhouse. And um, uh, shortly thereafter, he decided to move west, you know, the usual uh, late 1940s migration west, go west, you know, and um, bought a business out there, and we moved. But before we moved, the head of the playhouse, the little playhouse in Des Moines, said, if Gordon wants to continue, Gordon Jr. wants to keep acting, go to Pasadena Playhouse. They, you know, it's an amateur thing, but, but it's a very um, established, and they do a lot of work, and you know, it'd be a great place for him to continue his acting career. But that wasn't the agenda. That was a secondary agenda to your father's wanting to go west. It wasn't like oh. I'm going to make my 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 boy's going to be. Uh. Well, that's interesting. I've never thought of this. No, 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 no. It, it definitely had nothing to do with my career. Mm -hmm. The move had nothing to do with my career. But I suddenly wonder. You just spark something. I wonder if moving to California, Southern California. As opposed to northern, yeah, or or, or Seattle, or yeah, I lived know, in northern for a long Washington time. Washington or Oregon, go west has you know there's a, a what two thousand miles of west. Yeah, going to Southern California where Hollywood is, yeah. where, where you know the, the, the movie industry. I wonder if somehow in the back of his mind, he found that a more attractive place than Seattle or Portland mm -hmm. or San Francisco. He got established in his business, yeah. But I doubt, I doubt we were there more than a month. Then my mother took me to the Pasadena Playhouse, <laughs> which was uh, you know, thirty minutes from our house. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I landed a play, a, a part in the play, um, Christmas play with Victor Jory. I can't remember the name of the play now. Okay. Um, it's in the article. It's okay. in the Des Moines Register yeah. article. Um, and did pretty well there. But there was a agent, a talent agent in California named Lola Moore. And uh, she came backstage one night and said to my parents, I would like to put him under contract. I wanna I wanna represent your son. He's great. So, of course, my parents jumped at that and told me how wonderful this all was and so on. And she started sending me out on interviews for movies. Uh, it turned out that Lola Moore had about 300 kids <laughs> that she represented. And she would typically send out about 100 to every call. Mm -hmm. So typically, if it, was a, if it was for a part for a boy at, say, seven... She would right. send out her four-year-olds through her 12-year-olds, yeah. <laughs> you know, and every... So, um, but I was lucky. I got singled out for a, a couple of parts, uh, small parts. I did a little thing with Loretta Young and a little thing with, um, actually, with the um, Polio Foundation, I, with Margaret, um, Margaret O'Brien. Uh-huh. I was going to say Margaret Dumont. <laughs> no, Margaret O'Brien, who was uh, about five years older than me mm -hmm. at the time. How old were you at the time? Okay. Um, about six. And what about consciousness six. did you have of what you were doing and what it meant? 
to be, did you, when you first saw your, do you remember, or do you remember, do other people remember when you first saw yourself on screen, say, or, um, or that you were with stars? Well, at this point, at this point, at the Pasadena Playhouse, I'd only done plays. Right, but once you... Then I did yeah. one small movie, yeah. it was a bit part with uh, Loretta Young, come, right. come to the stable, and... Um, you know, movies were not a big part of my consciousness. You know, my my wife talks about going to movies from the time she can remember. Right. Every, you know, every Saturday. Yeah. Her parents would take her to the movies. My parents, if they were big moviegoers, they didn't take me. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I was left behind with a babysitter or something. So seeing myself on screen, I don't remember it as being an earth-shaking mm-hmm. thing. Uh, the screen itself wasn't that mm-hmm. earth-shaking to me. Uh, so, um, but I do remember. Well, let me take, go on with the story because yeah. I remember something really distinctly just a little while, uh, somewhat later, uh, mm-hmm. about screen, seeing myself on the screen. Uh, I got a small part in a play in a uh, movie with Janet Lee and Robert Mitchum, and there was another boy who had been cast to play Janet Lee's son. It was basically a co-starring role, a very big role. And I had this little bit, actually, uh, deliberately non-speaking part. I was his silent friend from downstairs. And there were a couple jokes about Joey and silent Joey and Joey who never says anything. And uh, so I was I was cast into that part. And apparently this, this young fellow uh, who had the lead role wasn't doing well. And um, after 10 days, they stopped filming and restarted with me in the lead role. And it's interesting because often I think back, I wonder what ever became of him, what, what he went on to do, and whether that any, had any effect on his life at all. But anyway... Uh, you don't know his name? No, I don't. Yeah. I don't. Uh, I went down and did the lead role, and we worked on that for about eight or nine weeks. That was typical. Mm-hmm. It was it was done uh, with RKO, mm-hmm. which was Howard Hughes' production company. Mm-hmm. Saw Howard Hughes a couple of times on the RKO lot. Um, and if I recall, remembering, it's one of those movies where the, the kid helps the romance along. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the mother... The mother, uh, the mother's in a relationship yeah. with a very secure, uh, very um, staid mm-hmm. lawyer, mm-hmm. Uh, very rational, mm-hmm. very lovely guy, Wendell Corey, mm-hmm. who's just a great character. Mm-hmm. Um, and into her life comes Robert Mitchum, yeah. Mr. Danger. Yeah. <laughs> and the boy isn't really thrilled about Wendell Corey, about the, the, <clears throat> the kind of established character. And his relationship with his mother and all that sort of stuff. And and is really working against that. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. I like the, the real real life creeping into these, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Hold on, let me just turn it down yeah, here. Thanks. Uh, let me go back a step. Yeah. Um so Wendell Corey's very established, uh very you know, giving this young woman who'd lost her husband in the um in the war, in the Second World War. Uh, you know, security and, you know, a, a kind of a very established life. But, of course, the boy doesn't like that competition and also doesn't 
like. I think probably not doesn't like that kind of staid conservative idea. And in comes Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum comes in and uh, is smart enough to woo the boy and the mother. And at the end of the movie, and since the movie's been around for almost over 50 years, well over 50 years, uh, this isn't a spoiler, off he goes to California with her. Ah, the California theme. Yeah. Again, see? So off to California to, to find bigger, better, and yeah. more exciting things, which, of course, paralleled my life just two years before. Um, but uh, that movie... Uh, was made in the summer. Pre-production in those days was highly accelerated, so it was ready for release for Christmas. Mm, what year? Um, I think 46, okay. 46 or 47. Um, and uh, I went, my, my parents took me to see that movie about 15 times. I was so bored. Was your father really excited? Who was more oh. excited? Your father must have been through the oh, roof. Oh, my father was just ecstatic. Ecstatic. He was through the roof. And every time, and people would come to town. Or he would meet new friends. Oh, we're going to take you to the movies. Right, because you, you, you didn't have the video cassette. Right, yeah. and Gordon <laughs> Jr. will have to go. You know, And of course, I'd have to go, and I'd have to sit through the movie. So I sat through that movie innumerable times. It was just excruciating. Um, Did people ever recognize you oh, in yeah. the theater? Yeah. Oh, yes. Or, yeah. Oh, absolutely in the theater, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of fame, I began to develop a distaste temporary. As the story goes on, you okay, say it was good, temporary. Good. I began to develop a distaste for that fame. And part of it had to do with my peers, because I would be out with friends and uh, people would recognize me. And my friends would, of course, give me a lot of trouble over that. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was the kind of attention you didn't want. Yeah, they would, yeah. They would, they would interfere in a conversation. <clears throat> and, then, uh, and then, of course, I would get a lot of uh, grief <laughs> about it. Um, and student, uh, some of my fellow students in school were not appreciative in, in public school. You know, oh, just because you're a movie star doesn't yeah. means you can do this. You, you know, I mean, you know how kids are. Yeah. So I very quickly developed a distaste for for notoriety or for being recognized. And, um, of course, my father, too, would make a big fuss. And, uh, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Who are you? Where are you from? And I'd be going, oh, please. <laughs> um, but I did a lot of movies. I did a lot of movies. And, you know... My motivation, it's hard for me to still to sort, sort that out. I resented it a lot. I, I couldn't do the things that my friends were able to do. I couldn't do Little League. I, mm -hmm. couldn't, uh, I couldn't engage in school activities like um, sports and things because I was in and out of school constantly. The arrangement, uh, you're probably aware of this, but the arrangement for schooling of people who are under 18 or still in school uh, all the way through high school is that they bring a teacher onto the set and you're required to put in three hours of schooling every day coordinated with your home school or that is with your yeah, with, with your established school and so my teachers would have to put together um, 
lesson plans and curriculum and so on. And then the studio teachers would teach to that. And I had my own textbooks and everything mm -hmm. I would carry and so on. Um, so uh, child labor laws in California in particular were very strict on that. Three hours of schooling during the school year. You can only work so many hours a day. You had to have a break, certain breaks and so on. Very, and that, that teacher was also what was called a welfare worker. He or she represented the, um, mm -hmm. you know, enforced those, mm -hmm. those regulations uh, with the director and producers and stuff. So um, uh, I, I went to school for a couple years more on the set hmm. in that arrangement than at, at my actual school. I still did social things. I'd still sometimes go back to school for things, even mm -hmm. when I was working. But um, it was strained. And I, I, there was a couple of years there, at least, where if I'd been asked and it had been totally my choice, I probably would have said, I just want to lead a normal child's mm -hmm. life going to school. Looking back, thank God I didn't have that choice, uh -huh. you know, because that career really changed my life for the better in a uh -huh. lot of ways. I mean, I still draw on it. I still draw on those experiences. Um, but at the time, it, it was a mixed blessing at best from my point of view. Um, and it also, you know, I did, want, I did everything I could to get out of Hollywood. <laughs> oh, uh, before we, before we, I want to hear about that, but first... Can you think of how you draw on them? Just, I mean, you were working at a much younger age than most of us do, but... Well, yeah, I'm a teacher. Yeah. I mean, I've been a professor of architecture mm -hmm. since uh, 1969. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, I don't want to say I've dedicated my life to it, because I also have architectural practice mm -hmm. and, and now do administration, which I'm very dedicated to. But um, teaching is an integral part of my life, has mm -hmm. been, and, and something I, I really enjoy and have enjoyed. Uh and uh, it, with teaching, uh, it's sales and acting mm -hmm. is a is a fundamental part of it. I also teach. So, okay, yeah. you, know, you know, getting your point across, yeah. uh, establishing a relationship with the students, whether it be a one-hour lecture and you never see them again, or whether it be a class or even recurring uh, semester after semester class, uh, building that that uh, connection, maintaining that connection. Mm -hmm. Uh, and selling selling ideas, you know, getting ideas across to them uh, in a convincing uh, way and in a genuine way, which mm -hmm. is, you know, that that authenticity, that genuine quality is an integral part of good acting and of good sales. Yeah. So these three things all come together. I think teaching, sales, acting. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I and and so I think to the extent I been successful as a teacher uh, I've been uh, I've, I've drawn on those on what I learned from my father and what I learned mm -hmm. you know in the in the uh, entertainment business so, so how did you reach the point when you wanted to get out well I mean I think there was a thread from day one that I I, I wasn't comfortable yeah. in yeah, this you role said, yeah. that this role was defined for me uh, you know uh, it wasn't complete anathema it wasn't abhorrent to me mm -hmm. but it wasn't my choice mm -hmm. and it wasn't the kind of choice I would have made for myself mm -hmm. and so I think from day one I, there was a little piece of me yeah. that was 
deviating a bit. You but, did suggest at one point you started to, to shift towards liking it a little better. You were starting oh, to say earlier. Oh, now, now, yeah. you, you know, absolutely. Now, I, it, it was a major thing, a major positive aspect of my life. Oh, I thought you meant somewhere in the time when you were doing the work that you... I became more comfortable with it as I became older. Uh, did I find great joy in acting? <laughs> Mm, not like I'd have teaching. Uh, not like I have administering a school of architecture or in building. I love building. Mm -hmm. uh, I love being involved with the act of construction and design. Yeah. But, um, you know, I became comfortable with it. But I, but I was also clearly lands to get out. Um, as a kid, as young as eight or nine, I, I really liked construction and architecture. My mother was smart enough, prescient enough, prescient enough to um, uh, get a subscription to uh, uh, a couple of architecture magazines. Loved well in those days, as you recall, I'm sure magazines were a big deal. Oh, that, yeah. that was enter that was the entertainment. It wasn't TV, iPads, or anything. Yeah. Magazines were the iPads of the day. Yeah. And so uh, my mother would take me every week. We'd go to the magazine store, and in LA there was. Huge, big. They have like a whole wall of magazines. It's like Barnes and Noble, but they'd be on every corner. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would pick out magazines, whatever my passion was for that few months, whether it be flying or, yeah. or whatever. But it always seemed to come back one way or another to building and construction, popular mechanics. Yeah, I thought yeah, that's what I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> popular mechanics. But I, I ended up. Uh, she ended up getting me. Uh, a couple of professional architecture magazine subscriptions. Oh, uh, yeah, I, 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 I read those magazines, poured over them by the hour. Uh, I was an only child, spent a lot of time, you know, not alone. My mother was always there, or my father, or both of them, but, but I spent a lot of time, without siblings, I spent a lot of time reading and Killing time, like kids all do, and for me it was magazines. Magazines. We are both only children born on October seventeenth. Wow. Yes, I. Darcy <laughs> yeah. mentioned last yeah. night October seventeenth, yeah. but I think we're at least a decade apart. Yeah. I was born in sixty four. I'm fifty two. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I was born in forty one. Yeah. It's just seventy five. Yeah. So, yeah. But, uh, but I, you know, I, I developed a passion for architecture, for building and construction. The other thing, we were in California during the building boom. And we moved about three times in 12 years or so. Every time we move, we move into a new neighborhood, and they'd be building new houses right around us. Mm -hmm. And so I love going on the construction sites. I love the smell of sawdust and of, of uh, plaster and concrete. And so how did you transition out and into... Well, um, again, my father says, I went, I went to UCLA, which mm -hmm. was just over the hill from where we lived mm -hmm. out in Los Angeles. And I wanted to go to architecture school. Mm -hmm. No, no, architects don't make money. Right. Blah, blah, blah. You got to go into business. Okay. So at what point though, before that, did it not be like you're going to full on just stick with an agent and were you still going out on auditions in those days? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, not so much on auditions, but by that time, I, I very quickly transitioned from this uh, very nice and a woman who really got my career mm -hmm. started, but who uh, handled hundreds and hundreds of people to much better representation, mm -hmm. much more personal, much higher level mm -hmm. representation. And I had an agent 
that I switched over to, or we, my mother switched me over to maybe when I was 15, 14, mm-hmm. who was very dedicated to my career uh, and had, he had some very good people. He had uh, lesser folks like myself and really worked very hard for us. And um, he kept sending me out on things, often without an interview. I'd just be, get parts for me. Mm-hmm. Um, through maybe my second year in college. I think the last thing I did was uh, a movie, a Disney movie with Fred McMurray, mm-hmm. The Absent-Minded Professor. Oh, great, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was a big part. I mean, the other thing is, is that I went from starring role mm-hmm. in uh, Holiday Affair at the age of seven or so mm-hmm. um, through some other very big roles mm-hmm. and did stage work Mm-hmm. Uh, spent a year in San Francisco and a year in uh, Los Angeles doing stage work and so on. Uh, never came to New York to do it. But um, but then the roles started to taper off. Then the big roles stopped coming and they got smaller and smaller. And I think that suggested to me... Well, the other thing, you know, when you live in California, you realize that the f- people you see on the screen and even the people who you see listed in the big movies, in the technical roles, uh, cinematographer, um, uh, even sound and so on. There are very, very few of those people. Yeah. And there are very few people who make it to the top of the ladder in their field, whether it be something behind the cameras or in front of the cameras. And there are tens and tens of thousands of people who are leading anywhere from a nice, decent life Mm -hmm. down to bare subsistence or doing it as a hobby, you know, or, uh, well, not teachers because you got (laughs) to... Right. But are are doing all kinds of jobs just to to be able to also play a a bit role here, a bit role there. Um, The movie industry, like I guess most, most industries, is built on the backs of a lot of silent, invisible people who um, don't do so well. Yeah. You know, don't do so well at all. I think movie industry is one of the worst in that respect because they, you know, the contract, that whole studio system's gone, so even the stars are project to project, yeah. film to film. Um, and it's it's a tough life. It's a very, very tough life. And um, it's, it's a frustrating life, you know, because you're amongst all these people that are doing so well. Uh, it's it, so I just I just just you know it was clear I had to get out, um, and so I went to pre-business for about half a semester at UCLA, and started doing artwork and so on towards transferring out into architecture, mm-hmm. and I transferred to USC was there for a year, and took a trip around the U.S. in a old Volkswagen Beetle and ended up uh, at MIT transferred to MIT so I got as far as I could I, I did the reverse That's go great. west young yeah. man I went east I went west and came back well th- yeah. that's basically what I did because I was yeah. taken west yeah. and then came back uh, in fact I went beyond the midwest mm. all the way back here to- did you ever feel the urge again did you ever question that the, the decision <laughs> Yeah, well, 
the, the decision to leave California um, gnaws at me every time I go back to California. I don't go back that often. Mm-hmm. We have no family left back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's here. But um, when I go back, uh, um, Los Angeles still has a real pull as the place where I you know, came of age and mm-hmm. had a grand time. Mm-hmm. But you know, going back to, to the career, I had a grand time as a teenager because of the movie industry. Even though I, I, I wasn't so sure about having the notoriety and being right. recognized, you know, my ability to get around town, uh, the fact that I was able to buy a car at 16, was all a result of this, this career. And I, you know, even then I realized that it had its yeah. definite advantages, even though I wasn't completely yeah. in tune, in tune yeah. with it and, uh, and so on. But it seems like you, you enjoyed various aspects of the career, but you didn't have the bug for, for fame itself. And that was the most ambivalent piece of it, it seems to me, to you. Well, I think that's a good, yeah, yeah I think that's an excellent observation, is that I would love to have had all the perks without the fame. <laughs> I think Bill Murray makes a similar uh, oh really? I think somebody asked him how it feels to be rich and famous, and he says, "The rich is fine. I could do without the fame or something like that." But I don't believe him at all. <laughs> I think he lo- he kind of he seems to love it quite a bit. He he yeah. he makes himself very public in ways he doesn't have to, like doing a guest bartending spot at a bar at last New Year's Eve yeah. in New York. Yeah. Well, but you know, if you look at Lost in Translation, oh. the, there's there's so much going on there about career and fame yeah. and and career taking a turn and and so on. And you know, I I saw that as somewhat autobiographical. Oh. Well, that's a dark vision of of fame. Yeah. No, you know, and he he. Uh, it's funny because I cross paths a lot with, with the movie industry. My wife's uh, a scholar in, in comparative literature and, and culture, and her dissertation was on film, and she's very much a film buff and film expert. But uh, the, um, uh, the, other, the other cross is that we lived in Nyack, mm-hmm. uh, New York. That's a center of um, East Coast movie folks and, and a number of our friends were uh, from the movie industry there um, so that was another intersection it wasn't based at all on my mm-hmm. my career uh, my career is just inconsequential in their thinking <laughs> but uh, uh, so you know we were we were kind of part of the industry you know mm-hmm. we had a contact with the industry and with, mm-hmm. with there very low key group very low key group mm-hmm. Uh, but Bill Murray lived just down the river in uh, one town, and he was in Nyack a lot. I never talked to him, never, but we see him a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel a connection there. Yeah, I bet if I there are certain people I, I feel like that I would love to get. You know, there's certain people I feel like would have a lot to say on the topic, and I'm sure he's one. But you know, having lived in Nyack and in other parts of New York, uh, where where people with some fame, especially in the movie industry, are kind of accessible, semi-accessible. I think my early experiences with a little bit of fame really prevents me from comfortably going up and talking to them. 
uh, I, there was a little restaurant, a, a funky little uh, Dominican restaurant in Nyack that we all loved. Great place for lunch, rice and beans and, you know, yeah. oxtail soup and stuff. And, and he would come in there. And Jonathan Demme would be there and uh, a number of other people from the movie industry. And I knew Jonathan Demme, so he and I would sit and talk sometimes. Uh, he was sort of in our social circle. But um, Bill Murray and others, I just would never think of approaching them um, at all. Right. Because yet, you have a, you could, you have a, a vague, a memory of the intrusive yeah, of, nature of, of, of it. Yeah, yeah how, how that could be intrusive. Yeah. And the extent, although you, you're a little skeptical, but if his comment that you just related to yeah. me about, uh, fame and, I'll, I'll take the riches, but let's leave the fame yeah, out of it. Yeah. I, I can understand yeah. that. Oh, I understand the feeling. I just think I think he has more mixed feelings about the fame than he suggests. Well, you know, and I have mixed feelings about yeah. the fame yeah. too. Uh, I now run a school of architecture yeah. at at City College, at City, City College, uh, City at, University yeah. in New York. Yeah. Yeah. I went to City College for grad school in English. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I I, I went from uh, I've taken the the, the normal uh -huh. route in life from Albany to New York to San Francisco to Turner's Falls, and in New York I went to Columbia, and then I. About five, six years later, got a poetry degree at, at City College, yeah. Really? What yeah. year would that have I been? I studied with Ann Lauterbach, and uh, that was in the 90s. Okay. I don't know if were you there yet then. Oh, yeah. I was I was yeah. acting dean of the School yeah, of I Architecture from 91 to 94. Yeah, I finished in 92 and went to San Francisco. All right. Um, uh, William Matthews, Ann Lauterbach, uh, Georgiana Lord, who ran the writing right. program. I, I really I loved her. Ah, okay. I worked for her there. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah. Wow. All right. So we were on campus together. Yeah, for and I see that at that cheap Chinese right across from street from campus, there was a takeout Chinese that was just classic Upper West Side junky Chinese, and I still crave still there that taste. Oh yeah, it's still there. Uh, but, do you, but do you remember the diner, so called the yeah. Greeks? Yeah. The Greek diner. Well, that's been replaced by an upscale Italian restaurant, uh, and there are a number of other trendy. Um, oh my God! 137th Street must be so different than when I. Uh, well, uh, Amsterdam has changed. Yeah. And um, 135th and Broadway is still pretty much the same. Yeah, 135th. Yeah. 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 Oh, it is good. Yeah, yeah. But but Amsterdam is yeah definitely going upscale. Mm -hmm. But getting back to fame. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, I kind of drew on my acting and my father's sales background. What I heard at the, you know, in every family conversation about sales with my teaching. But I'm finding that, that, that I, I feel that what I need to do for the school and what we as leaders need to do for the school is to raise the value of the degree uh, for everybody, for our past students, our present students, and mm -hmm. anybody who's ever going to get a degree from the mm -hmm. School of Architecture, the Spitzer School of Architecture. And one of the main ways to do that is, you, well, first of all, you got to, to be on the genuine side. You've got to be doing real things. You've got to have real programs, better teaching, better curriculum, increase the quality of the faculty through development and hiring and so on, um, bring in money, scholarships, all these things. But then that's good. But if you're silent about that, that helps people to a small extent. But the way to really leverage it is you've got to bring the profile of the school up. Mm -hmm. People have to hear about all. Mm -hmm. So 
fame is it's all about fame. Yeah, and, you yeah. got to get the name of the school out there for yeah. the donors, for prospective students, prospective faculty, yeah. and so on. So I I find myself now trading on fame again. Yeah, as an administrator. Not on my fame as a not my fame as an as an actor or any other part of my career, but rather on the good works that the faculty do, the really mm-hmm. good works that students do. Every time they get an award, yeah. I leverage that every way I can <clears throat> so that people understand how well we're doing and how well our students yeah. are doing, how well they'll do if they come to the school to teach or if yeah. they come to the school to learn. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, disparaging of, of fame, but if you look at WAMC Public Radio, oh, you know, uh, Alan, Alan Shartok... Their personalities, you know, Alan drives people away and to WAMC, but they they drive the success. Yeah. And, and the personality matters a great deal. The value of uh, a charismatic and eager personality who wants the attention for himself or herself and the station or and the entity is a lot. A driving personality yeah. is really important. And a driving personality is just a slightly polite way of saying someone's seeking fame. Yeah. But but you have to... I, I listen to WAMC. Yeah. Um, the Poughkeepsie yeah. simulcast yeah. station down there. Uh, and, uh, you know, Alan sometimes annoys me. Alan, sorry if you're listening. but He's but, not listening to us. <laughs> he only listens to Alan. <laughs> no, I have but, such but mixed he, feelings. He, 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 you know, he's, he's clearly the force behind that station. Mm-hmm. And and the, and the fear I hope they all have and are dealing with is that when he slows down and doesn't want to do it anymore, that yeah. there's somebody yeah. that can, you know, a couple yeah. years it'll coast. Yeah. But somebody will pick that up and will be equally as dedicated and sometimes even yeah. annoying because that's yeah. what it takes to raise the money and, yeah. and get the, all the affiliates and do all that stuff. And but he has a rare skill. He does motivate people. And he does, doesn't quite openly, but... He doesn't hide from the fact that he likes the attention. Oh, yeah, you can tell on air. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's it's a very rare person who can make that kind of ego work like he does. For, you know, well, it's a very delicate balance. Yes. Because if he gets too far over the edge, then um, people begin to resent yeah. that, and it works. then it starts working against yeah. you. You know, and that brings us back to Trump. Yeah. You know, one would have thought he'd driven it over the edge, yeah. but apparently not. I'm more comfortable with fame than I used to be. I can say that. Um, I'm now seeing it as a useful tool. Yeah. Uh, and as the head of the school and the dean, being someone who walks around and after a crisis and is yeah. a figure yeah. of the school. Yeah, you know, and, and um, I mean, I try to use it in all in great ways and, you know, try to help students and help the institution and so on. But... Um, Clearly a, a profile. We call it now a profile. Yeah. In our, our realm, it's trying yeah. to raise the profile of the school. And uh, uh, so I'm beginning to understand fame in many dimensions and in a much richer way than just self-aggrandizement and self, mm-hmm. you, you know, just ego. Yeah. So I, uh, but I also find it interesting that there are some people who trade on fame and fame alone rather than on fame oh, for yeah. A, yeah. a quality or for a achievement or a, a job well done. Yeah. <laughs> so it's something I didn't talk about. That's what I was going to People come looking for you is what I was going to ask you about. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, you know, I'm I'm not the big movie buff that the rest of my family is, but there's a there's a a guy on TMC who runs a regular show uh, on on old film, and he called up, and I did a, a whole series with him, and I didn't even know for sure. I had no idea how famous and how mm-hmm. uh, you know how, how expert he was. We had a good time, uh, but I also got a call, email actually about oh, two years ago, from a guy that runs a film noir uh, festival in Palm Springs every year. Mm-hmm. This festival had been going on for about fifteen years. He took it over from the founder uh, and was doing a great job. Asked me if I could be would be the featured person. I said sure. Now I did. It turns out that in addition to these kind of of open family, uh, not open family, but family uh, upscale, up, uplifting kind of things like Holiday Affair. Yeah. I also did some film noir that became kind of cultish. Uh-huh. And uh, so even my long afterlife. Of acting, has has progressed from you know a lot of fan mail and interviews and things on my Christmas movies and on the other things to the film noir stuff. Yeah. So I went out to the film festival in Palm Springs. It was uh, about a year and a half ago. It was great fun, great fun, and people remembered several of my movies. Uh-huh. And and, a, and I saw a movie there, Chicago Calling, which I'd never seen before. The, ne- the you I, had a I'd never seen it. <laughs> I mean, I I was about uh, ten, eleven, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm somewhat more mature than my first movie, so I'm, I'm I'm really starting to remember things. I'm remembering people, I'm really remembering situations and, and things that happened on the set and so on. And I'd never seen the movie, and there was one scene that was really powerful that I'd done. <laughs> I'm sort of falling on the ground and crying with this train going by about a foot away, two feet away, a really powerful scene, uh, and I remember doing it. But for years, I never thought of it, and it, it said never seen it on the screen. It was, it was really something to see it 60 years later, yeah, 65 years later, uh, and to have my son and wife see it too. Yeah, it was great, great fun. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, uh, Library of Congress has a facility down in uh, Culpeper, Virginia, the the um, Packard Center, mm-hmm. where they restore f- films. And they've had me down uh, three or four times. They've got a beautiful theater, a reproduction, uh, 1920s, 30s theater. And they take the restored prints of movies, films, and play them. I get, a, get three or four letters a year from people who've seen something or saw something about me. And How do they find you? Web. Yeah. You know, I usually get it at my college... Uh, email address. And is there any particular film that they... Well, Holiday Affairs. Holiday Affairs. TMC plays it every year at Christmas. Oh, good. I also played Audie Murphy as a boy in To Hell and Back. Oh. That was the last big movie that I did. And that was done when I was... um, That was done, I think, when I was a freshman in college. Uh, Maybe a little younger. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was... not a very long part, but I played Audie Murphy as a yeah. boy, so yeah. you know you could 
And I, I thought it worked out well. I thought I made a good Audie Murphy, you know. Um, and that was a fun. That was a fun movie. He was a great guy. Met. He was on the set. I think it was based on a biography. Mm -hmm. that, you know that he had a fairly uh, active role in, in writing. I think he wrote oh, it with cool. somebody else. But so that's sort of the career. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, my pleasure. This was really fun. Great fun. Great fun. I feel like I got some holiday viewing lined up. This oh, sounds great. Dear. Yeah, yeah. Do, do look for Holiday Affair. It's a fun movie. I didn't have time to do one of those add-on makeup calls I sometimes do because I wanted to get it up and out to you for the holidays so you can all go watch Holiday Affair. I watched it last week and... I really enjoyed it. You can find it on Amazon. Like a great many Jewish Americans, I'm a sucker for a Christmas movie. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life being top of my list. Miracle on 34th Street, Scrooged, love them. But on top of enjoying it as a, as a holiday romance, uh, on a personal level, it was great to see a, a tough little rapscallion of a boy uh, in black and white on the screen in 1949 and see in his eyes and his face, his, his face now and his daughter's face and his granddaughter Lennon's face. Uh, that was a lot of fun. So thank you, Darcy, for making this happen. And thank you, Gordon, for coming on. And I hope we'll talk again soon. Oh, and I mentioned uh, doing a little add-on extra episode because... I was so interested in, in Gordon's own story, I didn't think about the fact that I'm sure we'd all love to hear uh, any tidbits, stories, impressions he might have of the likes of Bob Mitchum, Janet Lee, and others. Burt Lancaster. So we'll see if he has a story to tell about them another time. On a completely unrelated note, today was uh, December 14th, 2016. A couple days ago, it seems like every day there's another disturbing cabinet appointment or what have you coming down the pike. And on a much less momentous note, but upsetting for those of us who were ever fans, images of Kanye West and... Donald Trump chilling in the lobby of Trump Tower. Check out Jasmine Mons or Mans, M-A-N-S, Footnotes for Kanye, Muddy Feet, live at Boxed-In, B-O-X-E-D-I-N. I bet if you Google Jasmine Mans and Boxed-In, you'll find the YouTube video of footnotes for Kanye, which sent chills down my spine. Thanks for listening. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.